I'm a state police officer in New Mexico, the proclaimed land of enchantment. I don't know if the name comes from the beautiful scenery or the sheer number of bizarre encounters people claim to have had. But in seven years on the force, in 33 years of living here, I've never experienced anything until two weeks ago. New Mexico is made up of small pockets of civilization, divided by hundreds upon hundreds of miles of vast nothingness. The odd town or ranch breaks up the landscape, but for the most part, it's just empty plainlands and mountains. There's also reservations. For the most part, we stay out of them. They typically have their own tribal police who do all of their own policing and law enforcement. But on the odd occasion, we have contact, and this is what happened on that night. A vehicle escaped pursuit earlier in the day and was believed to be headed into territory directly bordering a reservation, which I won't name. I have no desire to disrupt their everyday life. The vehicle was believed to be involved in drug activity, and the officer chasing them had wrecked in the pursuit. Fortunately, the officer was only lightly injured, but I was the next closest unit in the area and was ordered to respond. Approaching the reservation, I contacted the tribal police as a form of courtesy. They agreed to aid in search and sent one of their own officers to back me up. We'll call him Jake. Once meeting, we both agreed to ride in his vehicle, which was more suited to the off-road terrain we expected to tackle. The search didn't last very long. We found the vehicle left abandoned, about half a mile outside of the reservation, keys still in the ignition and still running. The window had been busted in, and shards of glass littered the driver's seat and floor. The jagged remnants of glass were coated with blood, and a trail led into the darkness. My tribal companion sniffed the air, which I found strange, and then asked to be excused for a moment. As he was walking away, I noticed him pull a radio out of one of his pockets. Not the police-issued one he had strapped to his chest, but rather a small cheap one, like you would buy at Walmart. He walked nearly out of earshot, and I could only catch snippets of the conversation, spoken in what I assumed to be his people's language. While I was waiting for him to return, I searched the vehicle and unsurprisingly found a substantial amount of crystal methamphetamine in the trunk as well as a loaded handgun with the serial number filed off. No wonder he ran, and if he was high at the time, it might explain the erratic behavior of busting through the window. My temporary ally returned, and we decided to follow the trail of blood and find the suspect. My backup probably wouldn't arrive for another 30 minutes or so, and if the suspect was bleeding this bad, we had to get him out before he completely bled out. Even criminals have the right to live. We tread off into the night, my companion leading the way. The blood trail quickly thinned. Maybe the perp had performed some self-administered first aid. This didn't seem to hinder Jake though his flashlight searching back and forth on the ground as he kept a steady pace and seemed confident in his navigation. We had gone maybe half a mile when we heard a noise pierce in the desert air, a human scream in one of immense pain. We paused in our tracks as we heard the scream fade only to be followed by another, even more fear-laced wail of agony. My partner went into a full sprint, headed in the direction of the scream. My sense of duty bade me to follow him, and I did. We arrived upon a scene of carnage. We found the man, abandoned in the section of a dried out riverbed, what was left of him. 
He was missing from the hip up. Jake drew his pistol and shouted something in the darkness surrounding us. It sounded like a challenge, and it was met with a deep, wet, throaty growl. Out of the darkness leapt a shape so black, it seemed to devour any light that touched it. It landed square on Jake's back, and he went down hard, slamming his head on a rock during his fall. This was no creature I had ever heard of, and I was momentarily stricken with fear. My training quickly snapped in, and I drew my own firearm, snapping off three shots into the massive shadow. It was too dark to see, but I know my rounds found purchase, because the roar of agony was let out from the beast. It leapt from Jake's back, soaring an impossible 30 feet away, and came to a stop. A cloud of dust kicked up where it landed. I was trembling so hard, I was afraid I might shoot myself. But I still fired the remainder of my clip into the dust cloud, this time with no responsive pain. Hearing the click was the biggest oh shit moment of my life. I widened my stance to brace for the attack, but knew it to be futile. Then I heard shouts coming from behind me. Two men ran past on each side, firing rifles into the fading dust cloud, and they hit. An even louder eruption of agony poured from the shadow. I heard a sort of chanting behind me and looked over my shoulder to see a Native American in full ceremonial regalia, holding a short staff of wood and shouting something at the creature. Looking back, the creature began dissolving into some form of cloud and tendrils of black smoke dissipated in the night air. Two of the men rushed to Jake to revive him. He was alive and miraculously only lightly harmed. The other men, including the man who had been chanting, spoke with me for several moments, ensuring I was uninjured, and then disappeared back into the desert. With Jake now awake, the men escorted us back to where we had left our vehicle. I could see flashing lights coming from the highway, and knew they were officers from my own department. Before they arrived, Jake dismissed the two men and talked to me. He told me to tell my department that it was a mountain lion that had attacked the man. The man, in some erratic rage, had busted through his window and the cougar had taken advantage of a wounded prey to catch an easy meal. He asked me what my superiors would think of me if I told them the truth. He was right. I didn't even know what happened, enough to explain to anyone, and trying to do so would probably catch me in some kind of psychological evaluation. I agreed to give Jake's version. It was believable enough and it wouldn't raise too many questions. So that's what I did. I lied. And my department was happy enough to have another violent drug dealer off the street. They didn't really care how it happened. Jake invited me to come back to the reservation one day and he would explain everything that had happened that night. What that thing was. Honestly, I'm not sure I'll go back. Sometimes, it's better just not knowing. I used to be a homicide detective in Philadelphia, PA. I say used to because I'm retired and have been for some years. The city isn't what it used to be. Sure, we had our share of problems in the early 90s. The city was still struggling with the crack epidemic that swept the East Coast and the homicide rate was at an all-time high. Most of the murders, about 400 a year, were driven by drugs and gang violence. 
or so we first thought. I remember my first incident with one of the creatures, or rather the carnage caused by one. It was a rundown crack house in the badlands of Kensington. Even before today's open-air drug market, it was still no place you wanted to ever visit, and when we went in, we did so in force. We got the call that there was a homicide with unusual circumstances. What an understatement. The scene consisted of three dead bodies, two male and one female. It was unclear how the call had come through, as there were no witnesses when the first patrol car arrived. These situations were overdoses 99 out of 100 times, and I had a feeling some rookie probably overreacted as seeing his first stiff. He didn't. Stepping into the entryway, I could immediately tell that the officer had been right to call it in the way he did. Three bodies, torn nearly to ribbons, scattered across several rooms in the house. No human, no matter how cracked up they were, would be able to cause a massacre like this. Forensics was called, and while they did their thing, we searched the rest of the house. The search turned up an oddity in the basement. It was an old house built in the early 40s and not maintained or kept up with. A portion of the concrete wall had caved in and a narrow tunnel leading into the earth, maybe two feet wide. A splatter of blood ran up the wall and into the hole. We didn't have any equipment they do today, so there was no way to prove it, but it was evident that something had dug the hole with intent. Catching back up with forensics, they informed us that the bodies were not wholly present. Several limbs and extremities were missing, nowhere to be found. There was no more information to be had, and there was no chance anyone in the neighborhood was going to talk. It was unexplainable and horrible as it is, but we were happy to put it behind us. Five more attacks over the next three weeks, same MO, low-key people, the homeless, the drug addicts, immigrants, the type of people nobody would miss. Forgive me, my perspective has changed considerably over the years, but this is just how it was then. The commissioner at the time formed a classified task force, and a representative from some government agency attended but never got his name or title. What he told us, well, it still brings back tension in my stomach when I think about it. Eaters, they call them. Not very original, but certainly on the nose. There was next to no information on them, besides a specimen that had been killed and taken recently in Boston. Five foot, head to toe. Greenish gray skin with a rubbery texture. Three protractile talons on each hand and three rows of razor-thin teeth line the inside of a wide mouth. No ears, eyes, or nose could be identified, and the organic composition of the creature was wholly alien to anything science had seen. Across cities on the East Coast, these creatures had been making appearances and slaughtering people in the same manner. Boston, New York, Baltimore, Newark, and right here in Philadelphia, each scene of the attack was in the vicinity of one of those same holes we discovered in the basement. The deepest they had been able to probe in one of those holes was 500 feet. And from what they could tell, it went significantly deeper than that. You could imagine hearing all of this, something out of a goddamn sci-fi movie. But there it was, laid out before us. 
I and nine other veteran detectives were assigned to this clandestine task force, our sole responsibility was to monitor and respond to any activities of these abominations from under the earth. And so began a two-year-long war that the people of Philadelphia had no idea was being waged. The attacks continued in the same format as before, in quiet locations, back alleys, and under bridges. We even suspected some kind of aquatic capabilities due to the sheer number of victims found along the banks of the Schuylkill. The attacks and deaths, when they were reported, were skewed to seem like it was a typical murder. Some of the other DTs had encounters, and we'd even lost one early on. In those two years, I only came up against one. The details are just too much for me to recall in detail. Suffice to say that I'm still alive to write this. Those few moments of terror will live with me until the very last. Toward the end of the second year, the number of instances had begun to slow down. We had communicated with other cities via the same government representative that had been at our briefing. The story was the same everywhere, fewer attacks and less violent than typical. Somewhat single piercings to an artery or a broken neck, they could have easily passed for the work of a human. There had even been a few survivors. I'm afraid of what likely happened to them. Then in the winter of 1999, the attacks ceased altogether. All across the East Coast, hostilities had come to a complete stop, not so much as a sighting anywhere. The task force remained for several more months until eventually being disbanded for inactivity. It was explained to me in no uncertain terms what the repercussions would be if I ever divulged any of this to anyone, ever. And that's where I've let it lie for over 20 years, but I just can't anymore. I see my grandkids running around and I just can't continue holding on to this information. What if they come back? What if they're just hydronating? Or then had been an advanced party for some kind of larger scale invasion? There is this building across the street from me that I can see every day from my office. The building is completely unmarked, except there's a logo of a goat's head located on the front gate. I often feel uneasy when I look at the building, as if there's something inherently wrong with it. I remember when I first got the office, when I got promoted, I was so excited to have a large office with a view of the city. Immediately, when I looked at that building, however, something didn't feel right about it. Many things have always disturbed me about it, but recently, I think I discovered the true sinister purpose of this place. I should mention I've been working for my company for about 15 years. The buildings across the street have been there the entire time. Since then, I've noticed several disturbing things about this place. I would love to sneak in there with a camera and expose the true nature of it. But I have a family and my days of being a martyr are well behind me. The first thing I noticed about the building is that occasionally I would see a car or a van pull in there. But never, not once in three years, have I ever seen anybody come out of that building. I'll be honest, there have been days where I barely did a lick of work and I just spied on this building all day. Something has been very off for quite some time and I've been trying to figure it out. The first person I ever saw go into the building had a black cloak. I didn't think too much about it at the time, but every single person I've seen go into that building has worn a black cloak. The cloaks have hoods and cover the people up completely from head to toe. 
and they all appear to wear the same exact style cloak. There's a reasonable explanation for this, but I've never seen anyone wear a cloak as a uniform, especially a black one with a hood. One day that it was raining, I tried to tell myself that they wear them to keep dry in the rain, but that's the only thing they ever wear. One time, I worked until late at night and saw five cloaked people over there in a circle. There was this red writing on the ground and they all took turns reading from a book. They then entered the building in a single file. I stayed later waiting for them to come out. Around 3 a.m., I fell asleep at my office and I have no idea if they ever left or not. I'm guessing probably not. It gets more disturbing. Almost always, there are small dead animals at the entrance of the gate. I've never seen anybody put them there, and I've never seen any living animals die there. Every morning when I look though, there are more dead animals there. There will be birds, rabbits, mice, and snakes lying right there at the gate. At first, I thought the gate must be electric, and that's what's killing the animals. Sometimes I take my lunch break at a cafe around the corner, just so I have an excuse to take a closer look without causing suspicion. I've touched the gate every time I've passed by, and I've never gotten shocked. There are also no markings indicating electrical hazard that would be required if it was an electric gate. I don't remember the last time I didn't see something dead laying there. Recently, a few dead animals have started appearing at the entrance of our building as well just a few here and there. I haven't mentioned anything to anyone at my work because I fear being called crazy. But part of me wonders if they're sending a message to me. Maybe they've seen me spying on them. Maybe the animals are used in conjuring up curses and they've cursed me and my workplace. That and the black cloaks alone give me the creeps. Sometimes at night, the window of the top floor glows a strange red color and I wonder if this must be some sort of unholy ritual. Could this be where they sacrifice the small animals? Are small animals the only thing they are sacrificing? There are often weird symbols spray painted on the sidewalk. The office isn't located in the best area. It's on the fringes of town, which is why all the strangeness doesn't get much attention. Basically just from me, who is hyper aware and watching like crazy. So, I always figured it was just someone messing around, or a gang making their territory. But now, I think that the members of the building are responsible for these symbols. I'm not an expert on the occult or demonology, but one of the symbols is a pentagram, and I know that's often used in dark magic. I don't recognize the other symbols, but it's in a similar style, so I strongly believe they're symbols for something sinister and evil. The thing that has freaked me out the most about this place happened just a couple of days ago. A black van pulled into their parking lot and five cloaked men got out. They opened the back and it took all six of them to pick up something from the back. I can't be entirely sure, but from my angle, it looked like a coffin. They carried it over their shoulders and into the building. The van pulled around the building and I haven't seen it or the cloaked men leave since. Was this a human sacrifice? I know I'm thinking too much. It's affecting my family life. It's affecting my work. It's affecting my mental state. But I get nauseous when I think about what must be going inside that building. I hope I'm just being paranoid, but I know I'm not. I can't talk to anybody at work about it, and I can't talk to my family about it. I also don't want to tell the police because I don't want to bring the attention onto myself. It just feels a little too dangerous 
I feel stuck and I hope I don't become a victim of their wicked religion. What should I do?